Hi everybody. Due to overall time length, Bible Prophecy Part 8 was split into two episodes. This is Bible Prophecy Part 8b. If you have not already listened to Bible Prophecy Part 8a in episode 15, you should go back and listen to that first. This is the conclusion. Welcome to CrossCast, where we discuss the modern relevance of the Bible from the Christian point of view. We shed light on subjects uncommon in the church and bring clarity to the gray zones and in all cases, glorify God. So once again, welcome to CrossCast. So that's verses 1 through 14. Now, going back over it for a second, kind of recapping those verses, there's parallels to the book of Revelation and other prophetic parts of the Bible. So just going back to kind of recap those, verse 4 and 5. Yeah, so we already went through this list of prophecies that Christ gave that shows us his soon return back to the earth. And we discussed what those may look like on the planet, but... There's another parallel that I didn't tie in on the previous episode. And 4 and 5 mention false Christ, and it reads like this. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Well, if you look at Revelation chapter 6, we already did the seal judgments. We already did an episode on that. And that episode was Bible Prophecy Part 2, where we covered those seven seal judgments. But the first seal is the white horse which is the antichrist ultimately deceiving the whole planet so we'll go back through these real quick and then we'll tie in these seal judgments and then in verse 6 and the first part of 7 of matthew 24 it says and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. If you look over at Revelation chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4, the second seal judgment is the red horse. And the red horse comes to take peace away from the earth, which of course is war. So now we have two in a row in the same order that Jesus is prophesying. And then later John is getting the vision and he's writing down the seal judgments. Moving right along into the second part of verse 7, it also says, and there will be famines. Look back to Revelation, the third judgment, the third seal is the third horse. It's a black horse. It's economic collapse and famine. It talks about a day's wages for a loaf of bread. So there's going to be hunger, and here it is, Christ talking about it. Then if you pull back and you look at the full scope of all of six and all of seven, and I'll just continue where we left off in verse seven, it says, again, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. The fourth judgment in Revelation chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8 is the pale green horse, and this is death, and Hades or hell followed this horseman. So you have this widespread death, disease, plague, these natural disasters coming upon the earth. The very first four things that Christ talks about, about his return, is 
in the exact same order that we have the seven seal judgments. And so if you want these cross-references that we look for in the Bible about the validity, the veracity of prophecy to have the full picture, the full color, as best we can, this is how we do it as eschatologists, ones who study Bible prophecy. And then moving ahead, verses 9 through 14, it says, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Again, we talked about this in great length last time in Bible Prophecy Part 8a, but this is about martyrdom. It says, people who are doing the work of Christ, winning souls, discipling, doing what the Lord has called them to do in this time will be killed for the cause of Christ. You look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we have the fifth seal judgment. It's the martyr's cry. There's this great multitude in heaven. It says, who are these? It says, these are the ones that have come from the great tribulation. And so again, paralleling right through the seal judgments, which leads us into this current episode that we're doing here, Bible Prophecy Part 8b, in verses 15 through 22, we're going to take a look at the next event that Jesus foretells. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So, there's a thousand interesting things in this little passage that we read so far. So first off, it starts in 15. And it, it addresses the abomination that causes desolation, which we've mentioned. But what I find fascinating is in this part, it goes right into an attitude of when it happens, drop everything and go. It says, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. In other words, if you're standing on the roof, don't even go back in the house because the way houses are built back then they would have a ladder or a stairwell, but mostly a ladder that went up to a hole in the roof where you could get up on top of the house and it'd be flat top and people would sit up there, work up there, whatever have you. It's saying if you're up there, don't even go back down in the house to get stuff. Just go. If you're in the field, because when you work in the field, you don't wear, you're going to be in hot and sweaty in the sun. Not everybody bathes every day back then. So you don't always wear all of your normal clothing. You strip down to the thinnest, lightest layer. He's saying, if you're in the field, don't even go back to get dressed, just go. And there's an intense amount of urgency. There's this, there's this hurrying spirit about it of this is so bad. You don't have time to waste. And then immediately goes into 
all the other issues, but let's just start right there at 15. Well, Jesus Christ immediately points back to the book of Daniel, and in episode 10 of Bible Prophecy Part 4, we went through an overview of the book of Daniel, but we covered chapter 9 specifically where Daniel describes this event. And Jesus mentions it saying, hey, for those who remember what Daniel spoke of, okay, when that happens, here's what you need to do. So it's kind of interesting, like you're saying, he doesn't really describe what's going on. He assumes the reader already knows what that is about. Now, we have some other references that I'll get to in just a second to bring some further clarity of the abomination of desolation, but you're absolutely correct. His focus was run and seek safety because the moment that this event takes place, everything shifts in the world. We are now at the great tribulation, the three and a half years, the second half of what we call the seven year tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel. Again, referencing back to Daniel, there's a lot of information that you need to know first before you can really get a grasp of what the abomination of desolation is. So whenever you look at the second half of the tribulation period, it is marked by this event. All of the judgments, the wrath of God, the epic proportions of death, war, martyrdom, the rule of the Antichrist, his dark reign. This is where it kicks off, right here. So Jesus wants his people to know you need to flee. We've already seen in Revelation where it talks about and power was given unto the beast. We also see in the same book of Revelation, it says that and he was allowed to trodden down and kill the saints So we know there's going to be a bloodbath. We know there's going to be death to God's people. So he's saying, run, flee, don't even try to fight, don't try to resist, just get out of the way as best you can because it's coming. So what is the abomination of desolation? We broke that down before again in previous episodes, but it is the abomination before God that makes his holy place, his temple, desolate. Which temple? Well, it's not yet built. Okay, we had the first temple, which we call Solomon's temple. The second temple, they call Herod's temple. Not that Herod built it, but he kind of, in order to appease the Jews, he adorned it. And that was the temple during the days of Christ. We just read in previous, in Matthew chapter 24, the first few verses there, it talks about, and I tell you, not one stone will be left upon each other. That's speaking about the second temple, Herod's temple. And in 70 AD, it was destroyed. Well, now here we are in present day. You have the temple mount. The Dome of the Rock is not a Jewish holy site. It's a Muslim site. And the third temple, as we call it, because it's be the third one in history, is not yet constructed. They already have all of the furniture and all of the tools necessary. They have the uh, red heifer that may be qualifiable to sacrifice, get the ashes of the red heifer. They have the, the brazen altar, the menorah, all these different things that are needed to make the temple function properly. And so this is coming. So this this shows you that we're almost to the point where they're going to construct a temple. So that is the abomination of desolation. And we want to also know that Paul mentions this event in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll look at that here pretty quick. In the preparation of the temple, didn't they have to find like a certain fish to make a certain kind of like purple or blue dye, and they thought the fish was extinct, but now they found the fish. It was a snail. My dad heard this episode, and he says it's a snail. It's a snail? (laughs) It's a snail, yeah. He heard that episode previously where you mentioned about it was a fish, and it's a snail. But yeah, 
the dye that yeah. they needed for the priestly garb, the trumpet. They needed to know which size and how to make the trumpet for the specific sacrifices. They found some manuscripts or uh, some sort of ancient writing that lets them know the size to get the right frequency and all that. All of these things, they have everything. And then some people want to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Where is that? Do they have it in their possession? Do they need one? But everything is ready to go. The Levitical priests, they've all been located. They've all been training. They've got the right bloodline. They've got the right training. They've got the right utensils and furniture and all these things, the location. And they can get going. They said if they were green-lighted, they could be going in a matter of months. And I'm talking about the animal sacrifices, as you read about in the Old Testament, where you have the Law of Moses and all these atonements that you have to do with animals and grain offerings and animal sacrifices and things of that nature. It's coming back. It's prophesied. And this is where the Antichrist goes in to that temple. He claims to be God. And this is what we call the abomination of desolation. Isn't it weird how in the Baptist or non-denominational world, we look at like traditions and things that have been done for a long time as like, oh, we got to move away from that. We should update. We should new. Yet we're celebrating and so happy that the Jews are getting back to their old traditional stuff. Well, I mean, I think it goes right in hand that what we're celebrating is, is we're getting close to right. the return of Christ because why? Well, we have to have a temple in order to get to a point of this event right here, the abomination of desolation. And you can't have that event without a temple. So it's not that we're glorying in the traditional ceremony, the sacraments and these things that Christ came and gave us the the new covenant. We celebrate the new covenant. We don't glory in the law of sin and death. But from a standpoint of Christ's return, this is why we get excited. But I think there is the parallel getting a little bit off subject about how Christ came and he was angry and upset with the Temple Mount people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, all of these that were involved with the temple. Those are the ones that he was most upset because they weren't even seeking God. Everything was just a ritual. Everything was just a hierarchy and and they can lord over the people and control. It wasn't even about God. It wasn't even about seeking him. And that's why Christ was like, you're in the way. You're an obstacle of my people coming to me. I set these things up so that way they know how holy I am and how much in need of a savior. That's their situation. They need a savior, and you made this into a bunch of rules to lord over them and to oppress right. them. And he was upset with that. Right, and that's the whole part of the Bible with the, you know, you den of thieves and flipping over the tables and all of that. It is the previous chapter, Matthew 23, where he goes through this. Yeah, and Rex Yeah, woe to you, you brood of vipers. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs with rottenness on the inside. It just woe, woe, woe. It's, it's just the previous chapter, and we, we've looked at it before, or we've mentioned it before, and you're spot on. And so we kind of think of like our modern-day church traditions. Sometimes these traditions start taking priority over things like, I don't know, God's Word. You know, right. your walk with God and the Holy Spirit within you and his anointing, you know. And See, and that's what we talk about so much with the idea of behavioral modification, that if you stand on a Christian too much with, you're doing this, don't do that, you're doing this, don't do that, what they end up doing is changing the way they behave, but not doing it because they love Christ, but doing it to shut up the Christian. Right. No, it's it's legalism, right? So it's, exactly. it's, it's a do and do not. You know, those are your laws, and then we don't have any true repentance and a relationship with the Lord. So there you go. 
Right. And that's goes back to the book of acts um, with Simon, the magician and Peter tells him because he comes to Peter and Peter's healing people. And he tries to buy that from Peter. I want to do this too. And Peter tells him, do go and repent and maybe your soul will be saved. That was pretty harsh. I mean, you're yeah. going, so what God is going to be, I mean, think about it in the grandiose God created everything, right? Everything that exists, he created. So you're going to take this little bitty minuscule thing, gold, yeah, that he created, and then try to lift it up to him and say, "Here, yeah. <laughs> take this. You know, give me some. Like this impresses you. Like you need this, right? In this economy, you need this." He's like, "I made everything. I don't need. I made everything. It all belongs to me. You're gonna take a piece of what I made and what belongs to me, and then try to give it to me. It's already mine. It's just, it's so crazy, right? But isn't that funny? You have like Peter's healing people, and then you have a, a, a magician, a showman." Say, I want to heal people too as part of my show. And then in the modern day, you have faith healers on huge <laughs> TV shows. It's kind of entertaining. Anyway, so back to what we were saying. Let's go back to the abomination. Okay. So let's go to Second Thessalonians. Okay, so Paul writes in his second epistle to the church in Thessalonica. And in verses 1 through 4, it goes like this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him... We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that's precisely the abomination of desolation. Whenever the son of perdition, the Antichrist, goes into this temple that's not yet built, and then they're doing these animal sacrifices, they being the Jews, they're doing the animal sacrifices, as we see in the Law of Moses, and he's going to bust right into the scene. He's going to say these blasphemous things. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to, again, this is an abomination that causes the holy place to become spiritually desolate. And at that moment, that's when Christ says, flee and run. And there's another little tie-in, because we're going to get to this in a, in a little bit later on in Matthew 24 here. But Paul says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless, and then he goes through the, the falling away and the son of perdition. So... Deception is rampant. The first thing that Christ said, we already looked at it back in verses 4 and 5, false Christ, deception. Deception is one of Satan's biggest strategies to lead mankind into everlasting destruction, hell, torment. A deception to move the population, move souls away from God. We said this before, anything yeah. but Jesus Christ. That's the end game. And here's Paul now saying, don't let anyone deceive you. And, and back in the day, people were thinking, hey, I think Christ showed up. Hey, I heard Jesus came back. And so Paul is saying, hey, this has to happen first. John in Revelation is saying, hey, here's the judgments that have to occur first. Jesus in Matthew 24 is saying, look, here are the signs of my coming. Don't be deceived. So that's why we're, that's, right. that's why we're doing Bible prophecy as a series. Hey, don't be deceived. Here is what has to take place first before Christ comes back to the earth 
to set up his kingdom. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. So in Matthew 24, here we are in verses 15 through 22. This is, of course, after the temple's been destroyed, which already occurred in 70 AD. And then you have verses 4 through 14, all of these signs, which is most of the seal judgments. And then now you drop into verses 15 through 22. You have the event, abomination of desolation. That's now opening up the second half of the tribulation period, what we call the great tribulation. And isn't it interesting how right now the Jews have all the stuff we're talking about. They have everything for the temple ready. They're looking for the temple. They're trying to figure out how to build the temple. We are basically hastening the day of the temple, like come temple, come so that come Jesus come and everybody's waiting for it. Yet the third temple doesn't really serve God. It's there because the Jews want to build it, but it really serves the antichrist and the agenda of the end times and the tribulation. That's perfectly put. There's debate. Will the presence of God dwell in this new temple? Because we have the first coming of Christ with the new covenant, the second covenant. The first one was the covenant made through Abraham, which delivered the law of Moses. Then you have Christ coming to the earth, dying on the cross, defeating death, hell, and the grave for us. And then he gives us the law of grace and mercy. And that's how God dwells with man now. He's not confined to a building. He tore the veil. So if they construct this new building, so what does that mean? Does that mean that, that the glory of God is going to come just like it was in the Old Testament? Some people say yes. I look at this and I say, I don't think so. I, now, I think they're just going through motions, to be honest with you. Now, I'm not saying they're not God's people by blood, but what I am saying is, is that's not how you become born again. I am not in this dual covenant theology which means there's two avenues to eternal life, one through Jesus Christ on the cross for the Gentiles, and then the other route is through the Orthodox Judaism and these these works. And that's how you become born again this other avenue. So there's two roads. You know, that's not true. That's dual that's called dual covenant theology and that's false doctrine. Right. And because if like you said, you have the moment where when Christ died on the cross, the curtain was split, the veil was torn down the middle. So in the new temple they're going to have a curtain. They're going to have a holy of holies. And if the Antichrist just walks up in it, throws the veil wide open and stands in it and says, why am I not getting struck down? Guess why? Because I'm him. There you go. I can't be struck down. That's perfect. And it says even the elect would be deceived. At that point, you'd have some Jews saying, well, yeah, he did it. So you have two options there. Either one, your faith is false. I don't say false, but your faith is a joke. Because your God was not in his room when he was supposed to be in his room. <laughs> that sounds harsh. Well, but... I know what you're saying. Yeah, and then the bad guy, if you will, but somebody else, anybody who's not a priest, because you remember the Old Testament, the priest had to tie a rope around their waist with a leash going out and with wear bells. bells. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and if the bells stop making noise... You can't go in there. If you go in there, you're done, because you're not ritually pure and clean. Yeah, so if he wasn't 100% pure and clean, he drops dead, and they got to drag him out with the rope. Right, if not, it'd be a pileup. <laughs> yeah, that was a precursor. Like, that was pre-planned. Like, hey, go in with bells and a rope, because if you come in here in the wrong shape, I will strike you down. There's no second chances. Right. That's how serious it was. So if somebody just walks in there, kicks the curtains open, and stands there and says, what now? You got two options, believe in him or question everything that you've believed in. Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting event when it occurs. Number one, when they build the temple and then commission the temple. And then number two, this very 
abomination of desolation event that occurs midway through what we call the 70th week of Daniel. The Bible calls it the 70th week of Daniel. And to see how this is going to unfold, we have a lot of description and color from different texts in the Bible, but there's still a lot of questions like what we're discussing. How is this going to play out with the presence of God? And I guess the world will see when it occurs. Now, if we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then that means that the church will be taken out because we're not in the tribulation period as of right now, at least when we're recording this. Yeah. That means we'd be removed. Now, if you you know, say that you're going to have a post-tribulation rapture, well, then that means that if you survive to the three-and-a-half-year period, then you'll have a pretty good idea about what's going on. But nonetheless, this event will happen. It will be very defining, and it will change. It will shift the entire world scene epically, biblically. The judgments that are going to come upon the earth are going to be over the top. Right, and this is after the beast system has already been set in place. We know that the first seal judgment is the revealing to the world the Antichrist. Right. Now, how has the Antichrist set up his system? I think, of course, he'll have a lot of the, whatever you want to call it, the networking and the infrastructure and the system in the background, but it'll be a roll-in as he begins to gain power, gain popularity, gain trust of the world and the masses. It's going to be this ramping. How steep is the ramp? It'll probably spike. It'll probably you know, kind of stair step, sawtooth up. I don't know, but there will be moments, defining moments that will give him power. But at this moment right here, we know that this is whenever the Antichrist just basically is... He goes all in. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he has no restraint. He has no restraint. Yeah. He does whatever he wants to do. He just starts laying waste to his enemies, mainly God's people, the Jews, the Christians. See, and there's two ways to see that. So if he, like with the Mark of the Beast, we were saying... He's going to take over the money. It's kind of a situation of, okay, that's easier to do before you're hunting down Christians and Jews. You know, you're more of a political figure. But at the same time, it's also to see it on the backside, like, okay, you're hunting down Christians and Jews. You're holding a gun to everyone's head and saying, guess what? Here's the new financial system. Right. So it could go either way. Yeah, if you don't take this mark that's been voluntary, well, now it's not so voluntary. Yeah. I think he's going to take... Everything that he can, the voluntary way, the winning of the minds and the hearts of the masses, he's right. going to go as far as he can with his whole agenda until it's basically, it's just full surrender of your property, your privacy, your soul. And then once he hits up against that wall, like, okay, I've taken everything that I can without firing a shot. Well, now the war. It's like you, right. you gain as much ground as you can to launch your war. And I think that setting up of... Like you said, his financial system, his political system, getting the military alliances, getting control of those technologies, getting everybody on board before you get to this halfway point. And then at this halfway point, then he uses everything that's in his direct power and control to just annihilate whoever's in front of him. And I think that's how we need to look at this, especially going into this second half of the tribulation period. So kind of coming back to topic. So down in verse 21, it says there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. So it's kind of like, Hey, here's the pinnacle moment of like, as bad as it's going to be. The one part of this that always leaves me in question is verse 19. It says, woe to you if you're pregnant or woe to you if you're nursing 
And every time I read that, I'm left in the spot of like, what is so bad about care? I mean, obviously I can. Okay. So I can see why it would say, woe to you if it's the Sabbath, because they have travel restrictions in Judaism. If you're on the Sabbath, you can't go more than so far. And he's saying run to the mountains. So it's like, you're going to run for your life, but you're going to sin while you're doing it. (laughs) Yeah. So I see that. And I see a little bit of like, okay, if you're pregnant, if you're nursing, you have a baby or you're bringing a baby into the worst time of the world. But is there anything to it, anything past that? I think it's logic dictates if you don't have time to go in to your home to grab a coat, to grab sustenance, things, material items that you need to just survive off of the bare essentials in the field, if you will, the mountains. Let's just correlate it to today's mom and dads, the, the new parents. Whenever you have a baby and you're going to leave to go run an errand, what do you take with you to get that baby loaded up in the vehicle? Yeah. You've got a baby bag, you got a baby backpack, you got a baby stroller, you got a baby seat, you got a baby. It's so yeah, you, your you, portable changing table. Yeah, you have all yeah. of these things and you come out looking as if you're gonna go on this long overnighter trip, but you're just going around the corner to go get milk from the store. Right. And I think in the same way that it's going to be such a burden that you have this helpless, very vulnerable infant that is subject to the wrath of the Antichrist and everything that's going on. And you're not going to have the shelter, the food, the sustenance, clothing. If it's winter time, you're going to need warmth. And just all of these things, just for lack of better words, it complicates survival, the survival of your child. And children are a blessing from God. And we are told to be fruitful and to multiply. Christ is rebuked his disciples and he said, Hey, don't prevent those kids. Let the kids come unto me. And so we know that Christ loves kids. We know this. And it's, I guess, sympathy for those that are trying to have a successful pregnancy and birth and have a successful raising and rearing of an infant in this time. Right. So you don't think it goes into child sacrifice or anything sinister? Well, we know that it's going to be sinister with the Antichrist. It's just going right. to be a genocide. So whether you're old, an infant, whether you're carrying a baby, it doesn't matter. The Antichrist will identify God's people as the enemy who must be destroyed, and all will be laid waste that gets in his path. We know this from what the Bible says. We reference the iconic villains in our history, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Stalin, Mussolini, M- Mussolini, these butchers, in order to subdue their regions or geographic regions, just by bloodshed. Just you know what? Just kill them. Just get them out of the way. They're dead. They're done. And then I win. I, I gain their territory. I gain their resource. They're no longer a threat. They don't. I don't have to worry about them naysaying my idea, my ideology, all of these things. But it's the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation which it says in the Bible that power was given unto him that he would trodden down the saints. Who was able to make war against the beast? Think about those words. Hitler could not right. say that from the standpoint of the Bible. He couldn't say that power was given unto me, read in Revelation, that's me. right? No, that was not the Antichrist. Yeah, because he struggled through Russia. Yeah, he was an Antichrist, but he ultimately was you know, brought to an end without Christ having to come back to stop him. Here, Jesus is going to have to come back. Right, because he's just going to be running amok. Isn't it amazing how former world dictators almost 100 years ago, it was all bloodshed? 
And nowadays, the same thing is accomplished through the using political correctness. Well, it's much more than that. You have propaganda, you have influences of distraction and all these other yeah. things. It's a lot more complicated than just like, you know what? Off with their head. You know, I, <laughs> I can't reason with this guy. I can't even deceive them. Just off with their head. Now we've been, I don't know, intellectually and spiritually lobotomized that they've already removed our head and we don't know it. We're just like walking around, um, for lack of being cliche, as just spiritual zombies. We don't even know what's going on. We're like the walking dead, walking spiritual dead. And again, verse 21, you already read it. It says, for then will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. We've talked about this before. Think about terrible times on the planet. Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, the giants mixing with women. The Nephilim. The Nephilim, yep. Pharaoh and his oppression, the Roman occupation of the world, basically the known world, all of the empires that followed after that, get into the Byzantines, get into the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Spanish Inquisition, bringing it more modern, the Bolshevik Revolution, which started communism, which then subdued the whole continent of Asia, bleeding over into China, you look at the rise of fascism under the control of the Nazi regime in Germany and what Holocaust and genocide that brought. And all of these bad times, nothing compared to what's coming. How about the flood? The world was destroyed. Eight people survived. That's nothing compared to this, according to Christ. Yeah. That blows my mind. And that's why it's so hard. It's so difficult to try to talk to somebody about what the tribulation is going to be like during the wrath of God, because we have nothing to compare it to. Some people say, well, I would like to go through the tribulation period because I think it'd be an adventure. No, it's not. Right. It's not going to be an adventure. It's going to be terrible. It's not going to be fun. You're not going to get entertainment from it unless you're just, I don't know, a Satanist, I guess. This is a time like no other. Yeah, because in America, everything comes down to an adventure and this idea of like, oh, I'd like to go through that. I think I can take it on. I'm a man's man. But then you spend 20 minutes on a camping trip till your phone battery dies and you're going, oh, there's nowhere to plug in. I'm out of here. Oh, this sucks. <laughs> I'm going home. Yeah, and that's that's the mindset that so many people have is like, I'll take it on. Head strong. I got this. And then they get in the middle of it. And you're like, oh, this, man, I'm going back to my comfort. I'm going back to, you know, this is harder than it's worth. I'm going back to the system. Right, and you're going to get in the middle of what you were just saying, the worst time on the planet. I'm 100% about the idea of flee for the mountains. If I'm here, I'm gone. You know, you'll find me on the middle of Colorado somewhere just disappeared into the mountains. Like, that's what the Bible said to do. It, one other thing that I, I don't want to lose sight of, it says, we're kind of jumping all over this little section. There's so much here to, to dissect, I guess. But in verse 16, it says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, modern-day Judea is basically the Palestinian-controlled area of the West Bank, which surrounds Jerusalem to the east. They call it the West Bank, but it's east of Jerusalem, and it's kind of like a big arc or semicircle that uh, is to the, again, east of Jerusalem. And it's interesting Jesus points out that specific location, and I think it's very fitting because that will be very hostile. Why? Well, because of those who dwell there. They're the enemy of Israel. 
That's the Palestinians, the Palestinians specifically that are controlled by the, the Fatah regime. And they hate Israel. They want to overcome Israel, throw them into the Mediterranean Sea, take over all of Jerusalem and all of Israel. And so if you're in that area, specifically flee. Yeah, so let me ask you this. What does that look like if we go back to what we talked about a few episodes ago with the Psalm 83 war? That's a great question. I I don't know from a standpoint of what it's going to look like after the Psalm 83 war. We talked about how those people will be wiped out. I'm not sure if there's some sort of, um, I don't know, civilian refugees that are left behind in that area, almost like a token, like, yeah, we annihilated you. But then there's hostilities that maybe creep back in through the Antichrist influence during the front half right. of the tribulation period that maybe, you know, brings them up and starts bringing them back into power, training, funding, weapons. I'm not sure, but modern day geographic borders and lines on a map, that's the West Bank. And that's a great question because if we do place Psalm 83 war before the tribulation period, we covered that. And absolutely that enemy is disarmed. They're destroyed. They're defeated. And so there would have to be some sort of threat there during this moment. So something had to come back in and inject a capability to this people group. Right. Because we were talking about Gog and Magog coming in and saying that they came into a or they came into an area with unwalled villages, right? That there was safety, that there was comfort, that people were relaxed, which would be very much in that first half of the tribulation or pre when they just got the temple and everything's going good for them. And then you have the abomination that causes desolation. Now the people in those villages are going, oh no, right? it's time to go. Well, we know also the Bible says that whenever they cry or they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them like travail upon a woman with child. Meaning what? They thought it was okay. They thought they were safe. They let their guard down, but then now here comes the final act. Right. You know, however you want to look at it, it's the final wave. And we're going to look at it here Um, to close out this section, and it says, verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So what does that mean? That means that Christ literally has to return to the planet to stop this, to stop the war that the Antichrist has unleashed on the planet, specifically on Israel and God's people, both the Jews and the Christians. And if Christ didn't come back, no flesh would survive. It's a pure and total planetary holocaust, regardless of race, creed, background, mark of the beast, no mark of the beast, all flesh would be destroyed. But Christ literally steps down on the planet in order to intervene and stop the madness, and then he sets up his rule and reign. And this would also point to, again, our need for Jesus Christ as our Messiah, our Savior. He came the first time for our soul. He will come the second time in order to save mankind on the planet and to establish his kingdom. We need him at both comings. We need him desperately for our eternal salvation and for his kingdom to be manifest on the planet to overthrow Satan's son, the Antichrist. Yeah, and to put it to a stop. He's the only one who can. Yeah, so it's like a perfectly formed war machine where the money is there because he controls the money. So the military's backed with a blank check. The food's rolling in. 
Nothing is getting slowed down. No supply lines are getting stretched down. He's just marching across, almost like how Hitler did going through Europe, but where it was just that drive-through gunning, and then the cleanup crew comes in from behind, takes out the one or two that are left, and they just keep moving in a wave. Something to that effect, just a flawless war machine that doesn't get slowed down. And again, like you said, who can make war against the beast? Who can stand against him? It reminds me of the question, again, pointing back to the book of Revelation, it says, who is worthy to open up the scroll? The scroll is seen as the title deed to the planet. Right. It is seen as the opening to begin the sequential order of judgments, which leads to the return of Jesus Christ. And there's no one worthy, and there was sadness. And then they all looked to the Lamb of God. He was the only one who was worthy to open up the scroll. Same thing. Jesus Christ will have all eyes look to him because he's the only one capable to destroy this evil power, this evil empire. And when he does, there is no match. There is no struggle. It is so complete and so suddenly it's just done. And that's just demonstrates the power of who God is, of who Christ is versus the antichrist. Again, We're looking at the second half of the tribulation period from a standpoint of being on the planet as a human being. It is very dreadful. It is very intense, biblical proportion, never in the history of mankind, nor nor ever will be. Who can stop him? Only Jesus Christ. It's like, here's this big power, kind of like you're saying, has all resource behind him. And then when Jesus steps in, it's the ultimate, infinitely greater trump card, if you will. It's just, it's a decimator. It's over. And Jesus rides in with an army for no reason. It's more ceremonialist. Exactly. It's, a, it's like a ceremony. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, uh, and I've got my group with me too. Yeah, he just brings the group. It's like, you guys came back, watch this. Yeah, he brought an audience. I mean, really, it's yeah, for pretty his glorification. Much. It's, it's for his glory. He, he brings an audience. We, he does not need his army to take care right. of this. It's more of just like, y'all stand over there with those flags, okay, on your pole. Got the nice flags. I got a perfect breeze. Looks right. really cool along this front of horses. Like you crack, you crack the sky open, it's about to go down. Yeah. Well, it's going to be more like a trumpet, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be totally awesome, epic. I can't even put words on it what this moment of Antichrist defeat will look like. But yeah, again, the abomination of desolation, the second half of the tribulation period, we call it the Great Tribulation, and we need our Messiah to come and put an end or no one will survive. So we spent a lot of time on the abomination of desolation, but it's an event that's very important. It's very key. So coming back now in verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. So this parallels what we were talking about with false Christ and the idea of you talked about how Hitler was a false Christ and this time you're going to have the false prophet already. Obviously, the Antichrist is a false Christ. But he's saying that there's going to be false Christ everywhere and people are going to be falling for it, falling into the trap, pointing and saying, hey, no, 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 man, that last guy was whatever, but hey, the real guy, he's over here. Or no, 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 hold on, the real guy's over here. I mean it this time. Yeah, I really mean it this time. Look, he's on Twitter, and he <laughs> yeah. said so. Yeah. Well, 
look, this is the third time now that Jesus Christ in this Olivet Discourse, in this sermon, whatever you want to call it, this narrative that Christ is giving, this is the third time that Christ said something about deception. The first time he mentioned it in Matthew 24 was verses 4 and 5. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. The second time he did it was in Matthew 24, verse 11. It says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. The third time we just read it, it says again, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And so he's saying deception, deception, deception all over the place. Right. All kinds of ways, all kinds of strategies, all kinds of stories, all kinds of false proofs. And so we must not be deceived. Now then, going back to the days of Christ, they hear about somebody riding into town. Hey, Jesus showed up over here three towns away. They have no telephone and modern technologies and things of that nature to see something or observe something. So people start gathering up their stuff to go on this journey. Don't do it. Don't do that. Don't be deceived. Or if it's like inside of some sort of secret circle behind closed doors or what have you, he's saying, don't believe that either. Don't be deceived. Again, the whole point of Bible prophecy is to understand the times in which we live so that way we won't be deceived. Christ doesn't want us chasing and believing after false messiahs. He doesn't want that. Again, it said, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. I'm not going to go back into Revelation chapter 13 and talk about all those signs, but we discussed it at length. How will the Antichrist deceive? He's going to have all this technology, all these capabilities that's going to seem like he's a god to us as mankind, as humans, because he's spiritually fallen. He's empowered by Satan. And so when we look at his works, his signs. If we don't have this Bible, we're going to say, hey, he's God. He's doing things that are not humanly possible. That's validating him. That's bringing credibility that he is divine. And that's what Christ is saying. The other thing is, Christ is not going to sneak into the earth and set up some sort of little secret society. When Christ steps back on the planet, it's going to be a total demonstration. It's going to be on display for all the world to see. It will be announced. You're not going to have to go and check your phone, go and check your email, go and check the news. Hey, did Christ come today? Oh, not today. I didn't see it in the paper today. No blurb on it. It will be obvious. And that's the thing that Christ's saying, hey, you're not going to have to go check and ask. You'll know when I show up. And that's kind of the key. So twice now in this section, since verse 15, it's mentioned the elect saying that even the elect could be deceived, or for the elect's sake, time will be shortened. So who are the elect? So we know that the elect of God is the born-again believers, the Christians, the elect, the chosen, the redeemed, the set-apart. It's synonymous for basically your God's people. And so it's talking about Christians. It's saying that if it were possible, even God's people would be deceived. That's how effective these lying signs miracles and wonders that the antichrist the false prophet his whole regime all of his demonic hordes of influence will be 
pushing and thrusting into mankind's view during this period, the Great Tribulation, in order to deceive, in order to bring, I don't know, it could be fear, motivation of fear. Hey, if you're not on my side, I annihilate you just like I annihilated that 30 million over there. Are you, right. are you, are you with me or not? Or it could be enticing. You want to be part of a civilized society, a civilized city. You, you want to have your job again. You want to feed that baby that you're nursing. Well, then come. So now playing to the heartstrings. Hey, you want a Messiah? You want a God? Look at these things I can do with these miracles and signs and wonders. You want the greatest politician? Look how I brought the whole world together. Any of these things that you're seeking, he will be very accommodating. And so that's what Christ is pointing out, hey, don't look for these specific things in the world. Look to me, your God. Look into the word that I gave you because all this stuff's been foretold. If you're looking for all the material things, Satan will be your man. If you're looking for a relationship with the one and only true God and his Savior that he provided to us, Jesus Christ, well then, this is his instruction. And we have some really dark days in front of us just before his return. Right. And so also, if you look at modern life, modern time, the atmosphere right now is moving towards science. The atmosphere right now is moving toward, okay, religion is antiquated and it's, you know, the caveman's way of explaining the universe. But now we've, now we understand the universe, right? So now we can look out and say, oh, it's this old and been this long. And this is the process by which when you have a person show up on the scene, and perform signs and miracles and change the world and do things that science can't explain and then say, why? Because I'm a God and they can't argue with it. The whole world's going to say, oh, that antiquated idea was true because let me tell you something about science. Everything that science has is theories. The big bang is a theory. Technically gravity is a theory. Dark matter is a theory. They can't prove any of it, but because it's not God, because it's not something that's, you know, a caveman could have come up with, quote unquote, something that ancient man could have come up with because it's science. They accept it as truth now. So when the scientists and the scientifically minded people are stumped and faced with somebody performing supernaturally in their face, it's not a trick. There's no illusion. This is happening. What was, and he's saying, I'm a God. I'm the God. You've been denying me, but I'm him. What do they do? Well, they got that choice now, right? They either yeah. bow down and say, we confess you're the God, or they deny this false God appearing to be real. And now they're the enemy of that right. person saying, I'm God. But when you're sitting on the ancient man's throne in the temple, in the Jewish temple, you're sitting on the throne in the ancient man's temples where it looks like a, a historic religion, saying I'm the God of this historic religion and Judaism led to Christianity, which is the biggest religion in the world, if you will, with the Catholics and especially with the modern Pope, he might agree with it. Be like, well, he's doing the signs. It must be him. Then you have the Muslims who trace themselves all the way back to Abraham. And he's saying, I'm the God of Abraham. And they're saying, Oh, well, I guess that's our Imam. I guess that's our guy. Right. And now he's appeasing everybody. He's appealing to the religions. He's looking at the Jews saying, I'm the guy. He's looking at the Christians saying, I'm the guy. He's looking at the atheists saying, I'm the dude that you don't think is real. Let's add in a few more. What about the Hindus, the Buddhists, the New Agers, all of these who are seeking a enlightenment? 
right uh transcendental transition or evolution to the god man he's like i can do this i can enlighten you going back to the garden of eden what was the first thing that satan said to eve saying you can become like gods right he's offering this way this enlightenment this divinity to be placed within you all of this coming together where you have this universal religion this universal false worship that will be very compelling and very luring because it looks like a payoff right now. Like, okay, you're doing these signs and miracles and wonders. And then if I participate, I instantly get a payoff, like some sort of, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you could talk about technology merging into mankind, this fallen angelic technology, having body hacks. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. Where now all of a sudden you're super smart. You're super strong. You have super energy because you're using this technology and he's, He's in control of it, right? And so he's manipulating your physical being. He's manipulating your emotions. He's manipulating your mind because he he's very resourceful and he's hooked in with Satan. And Satan's been studying the body for thousands of years, literally. And so now it looks like it's an immediate payoff. It's like it happened. I took the next step. You know, I became one of his disciples. You know what I'm saying? And and so it's going to be very enticing. And there's going to be a lot of people to just completely throw the Bible in the garbage and go headlong right. into his system to their ultimate demise. Well, and you you were saying about somebody looking for enlightenment that would find enlightenment. Somebody into transcendental meditation would find a, a higher state. We've talked about the idea of fallen angels bringing mankind knowledge that they weren't supposed to have, like the idea of the Tower of Babel. If they're trying to reach to the sky to a heavenly portal, we have skyscrapers now and way taller than anything they could have reached with, you know, mud and sticks making bricks. If it was a sin for them, why is it not a sin for us now? Because they were actually trying to reach something that was there, not just up to the sky. And I think we've talked about this before. And I think in um, either the episode of heaven, we're talking about portals and dimensions. And, and I do believe that there was something of that nature where they're trying to create some sort of portal to try to, you know, cross into the third heaven. And that's my own uh, conclusion with it. But like you said, it wasn't just like, oh, we're going to pile up these bricks and then we're going to take it up to 200 feet because that's where heaven is. No, there was something else going on. Yeah, there was something up there to be achieved. And so in that same way, if it's not fallen angels this time, well, it kind of is a Satan. He's a fallen angel. But in the same way, it's, oh, you're looking for enlightenment or you're looking for a higher plane. Let me show you this. You don't know what the image of the beast might be and what it might be capable of doing. AI hologram, some sort of robotic form with some sort of, you know, living outer covering, you know, some sort of organic cellular makeup to it. You know, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. And the phrase signs and wonders, what is that? Is it just fire from heaven or is it this whole room full of people? We're all going to leave the planet together and just boom, suddenly you're, you know, in a different state or in a different plane. Um, You're not where you were. And then you come back and he's like, how was that? And everybody's like, I can't believe what we just did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think you're going to have to get outside of what you know to be normal. It's going to have to be break. possible. It's going to be beyond what you think is possible. It's going to be beyond what you think is normal. And then maybe multiply it times another factor. And that's Satan's deception. That's, that's what we're talking about. Satan's deception. We're not talking about God's capability. We're talking about Satan's capability. Right. Because think about going to like a magic show. 
the first time you're in a theater and somebody's performing magic in front of you. They just ran a sword through somebody's body. It's like, how did they do that? You know? Yeah. But or it looked like, real or it was, you know, I don't know. It, it is real. What, what, what just happened? Did that just happen? That's yeah, or, nothing compared to what's coming. Or a guy's holding a dove, throws a cape over it, pull it off and it's a tiger. And you're like, where did, how yeah. Yeah. it is mind blowing. Multiply that to the point. You're like, this can't even be an illusion. Mm-hmm. Like, that's an illusion. I know there's some way to explain that, but what I'm seeing here with the Antichrist, there's no way for this to be an illusion. Like, it has to be beyond anyone's ability to fathom. It has to break your mind so hard that you can only say he must be a god. And let's talk about bringing it back full circle. We talked about, and if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived, right? And so what about the elect now, today, in the churches? Right. Are they deceived? Are they deceived in church services? Yes or no? I believe they are. That's a, yeah, it's a colorful conversation. We, we have heresy in the church, right? Heresy in the church, being taught, being conducted, stuff that's blasphemous, and you have these masses in the quote-unquote church fully participating in it, fully giving themselves into it. I mean, I don't want to, like you said, it's colorful, it's long. I don't want to get off into it right now. But the bottom line is, is that the elect is deceived today. There are so many of God's people that are deceived just in things that are scriptural versus things that are not scriptural. And they're fully participating with their money, with their time, with their focus, and it's out of control. And the Antichrist ain't even here yet. Well, and how many Christians right now, like Christians, pastors, believe that hell is just separation from God. It's not a real place. And doubt the validity of the devil well if that's the point that you're at now then what's going to happen when the devil's on the planet you're like well i don't really believe in the devil so this one must be jesus right what else could it be if it's exactly not the devil or not there's no such thing as the antichrist there's no such thing as the tribulation so we have all these things that are again lining up the dominoes for the first one to be pushed right so all of this deception that has crept into the church all this heresy the lack of studying eschatology that is setting up an ignorant church base to be fully deceived whenever the deception is brought to them by the Antichrist. But that's like 1 Corinthians. It says, if it is burned up, the builders will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames. So there's that situation of, you know, some people are going to get through, but just barely. Right. You're going to get, you know, nicked by it. Yeah, so what you're stating is you have souls on the planet they became born again and that was it there was no dedication there was no discipleship in the word being mature in in the lord and understanding doctrine understanding deception versus truth it's just they became born again whether it was at the end of their life because they were deceived the whole time or they became born again and then they were always just there was no spiritual growth taking place. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's for God to judge, but we have scripture where these people are coming in and they're not, they were never fully dedicated to serving God. They may have been redeemed, but they weren't serving God in the way that they were built and designed to serve God. And that's why we have the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat where all believers, all the redeemed go. And then your deeds on the earth will be judged before God. So that, you know, it's like a reward ceremony. So you get, Right. Your reward based off of what you did truly for the Lord, for the glory of God, not for the glory of yourself. And that's kind of brings the interesting thought and that's kind of a weird spot for, but when you give yourself to God, is it that weird moment? 
Is it that moment of you're at church and somebody manipulated the emotions just right and the music and the moment that caused you to tear up and you went up front and said a prayer. And when you said it, you weren't even really sure who you're saying it to. And you kind of went through the motions that somebody was pushing you through and you got through it. And in the end, they're like, oh, you're saved. And you say, oh, cool, I'm saved. And for the rest of your life, you say, yeah, I'm saved, but you never followed up. You, right. Nothing came from it. You just simply reference an experience that you had at a place. Right. And Jesus talks about, you know, some seed will fall into soil, will take root, but then the vines will choke them out. Some fall on rocky soil and it never even sprouts. So that's addressed. So if there's no fruit coming from you, like you'll know a tree by its fruit, you know, if there's no fruit coming out of you, then you have to question yourself there. Are you actually a Christian? And then take yourself in that situation and what's going to happen to you here when all of the deception possible is going on simultaneously and like in the strongest forms it could have, um, where even the elect in other words, people who are actually Christians, people who actually love God and follow God, even they would be fooled by it. And then you're going to stand there in the middle of it and be like, oh, I'll come out of this. All right. But Jesus told us three times, don't be deceived. We have the father of all lies, Satan and his son, coming to the earth with full capability and power that God just basically cuts them off the leash, you know, lets them run loose. Right. And here you have the full deception, full frontal, full frontal assault with, I guess, no filters, what I'm trying to say. And again, Christian, if you are not in God's word, if you are not studying systematic theology, doctrinal, foundational principles, all these things that sound way too formal for you, you are in danger of being deceived the closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ. And the Lord would not have any be deceived, but unfortunately we know that where the world is in its spiritual state today, it's spiritual darkness, blindness, groping around, not even aware of how wicked mankind is, how desperate of a savior this world is they're just they're not even aware of their own spiritual condition let alone trying to be prepped and prepared to watch for deception to make sure that whatever they're taking into their soul is of god because the antichrist when he comes he's going to deliver things and everything he's bringing to deliver will be packaged in a deceptive title it won't be packaged in oh here is destruction please partake it will be, hey, this is good for you. His, this is next level. This is divinity. This is prosperity. This is signs and wonders. And this is you know, something we can all come together. Just all these other banners, all these other titles. The end, it's destruction. Here's destruction. Hey, you want some destruction over here? Here's some death. And he's not going to sell it that way. And that's why the Christians need to be on guard for this type of thing already creeping in. The Antichrist system is already being built and designed. It's, it's already here now. It's just it's not in full mode of being operational, if you will, under the control of the Antichrist. One of the best ways I've heard it is from John Piper. He's a, he's a pastor from Minnesota. And he said, I don't know if it's his original words, but he said, guilt is to the mind what pain is to the body. You know, it lets you know there's a problem. It lets you know that there's an issue. And so in that same way, in the end times and in the middle of all this, and in the middle of all the deceptions, um, when you have the Holy Spirit, there will be a check in your spirit. When the deception's going on, it's just not going to feel right. 
it's going to be that. And if, if you're like a real Christian, if you really spend time with Christ, you know what I'm talking about that, that check in your spirit where it's like, everything looks good and it all looks approvable and it all looks okay. Yet I just can't sign off on it. And I don't know why, but there's a check in my spirit. And you hear that all the time in church circles. I'm like, man, you know what, dude, we've been planning this church service Man, all the music's good. The the lessons written. It's all great. You know, there's going to be 1,200 people here, and everything's good to go. But man, there's a check in my spirit about this one thing, and you just take it as like that's God telling me that that one thing needs to change. And likewise, in this moment, if like you and I are standing here, hopefully not. If you and I are standing here and the deception is in our face and we're just saying, they're going, man, you know, there's a, there's a check in my spirit about this, dude. I don't know why, but like, it looks so good and it looks so right, but I just can't. And you're saying, man, me too. I just can't. We're going to drop it and walk away. But the, the shallow Christian, the baby Christian is going to take it and say, looks good and dive right in. Right, and we know the Bible says that Satan will come and appear as an angel of light. Right. Appearing to be good, appearing to be soft and cute and cuddly or something that's divine and gracious and merciful and loving and just all enrapturing. But we know in the end, it's pure deception. It's death. And why are we talking about this so much? Well, because Christ did, because the Bible says so. That's why you always hear us talk about the things that whatever churches don't want to teach in in Sunday school or from the pulpit or things that Christians don't want to talk about because it's uncomfortable from a standpoint of this sounds like a terrible day on the planet or this doesn't sound like it's going to affect my 401k very positively. You know, I don't want to talk about this right now. I can't stomach this. Well, then if you don't ever look at it, if you don't ever study it, then when these things that come upon the Christian believer, uh, yeah, i never heard anything bad about this type of approach. So surely it's good, you know, right. but here we are. The, the Bible is laid out, read it from Genesis to revelation. All these things are covered. We see tactics. We see the strategy, the goal of the enemy. We see God's strategy and his rules and his control and what he's put down and what he said is going to happen. What he said is not going to happen. And that's what we stand on. Everything else has to be measured up against the Bible. And if it doesn't line up with the Bible, then we know that, the world or whatever is exterior to the Bible, that is the deception. God's word is truth and everything else that doesn't line up with it is a lie, deception, it's evil, and it should be basically rejected and then you flee from the temptation, flee from the evil. Right, and how many Christians do you know that could sit through church every single week? Every single week, pastor talking about revelation, teaching on prophecy, and yet when this comes around, they could still sit there and see the Antichrist sitting in the temple and say, he's in God's temple, must be God. Right. Because they heard it, but they didn't learn it. Well, and that leads right into the next portion of our scripture, verse 27. It says, what will Christ's coming look like? Remember, they're saying in the first century church, hey, he's over here. Hey, he's just arrived over right. there. This guy has some signs and miracles. This is what the Bible says about Christ, Jesus Christ coming back to the planet. It says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So we don't have this secretive 
coming of the Lord. It's not like this stealth entrance back to the planet. It will be on display, as mentioned before. It will be a full frontal return. There will be no doubt. And again, we'll look at his specific coming, the details to it, the description. We'll look at that later in another episode. But the bottom line is, is that it will be public. Hey, Jesus Christ wants the true glorification from all creation, and he will get it. So whenever Jesus Christ comes back, it will be the day of his choosing. It'll be in the manner in which he decides, and it will be to his glory as he's foretold. So that way there is no question about it, who the true Messiah is. And that's what Christians need to know. We don't need to be deceived. I'm not going to get into all these whack jobs that you see on the news claiming to be Jesus. And Because when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, I read God's word that describes that event. And it said nothing about a YouTube announcement. Okay. It has everything to do with the heavens opening up and rolling back like a scroll that starts like that. Okay. Right. And, and then it goes on from there. And again, we'll look at that in a soon upcoming episode. It's going to be glorious. It cannot be repeated. It cannot be falsified or imitated. Only Jesus Christ can do what the Bible says is going to happen when he returns. Right. And so verse 29 addresses that. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so what stands out to me in that verse is, one, the second coming of Christ, but then two, the rapture. It addresses both. So, Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the rapture versus the second coming of Christ. And I want to point out, right here is where post-tribulation rapture theorists stand and say, you see this? This is the gathering together. And this is his second coming. Therefore, same event at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, there is no pre-tribulation rapture. You have the pre-trib rapture theorists say, no, the rapture is a mystery. It's already occurred. That's why it's a mystery, because it's not obvious in the judgments that are being brought to the earth sequentially. So it's already happened. We have these other verses that point to this event, this mystery. And this is where God comes back to the earth and then he's gathering up his surviving people all across the world that have been trying to just survive and hide from the wrath of the Antichrist. And he's gathering those people up together. And that also includes the dead. Some people say that, yeah, this is the dead that he's bringing back, the, the elect. Not not the dead in their sins, the lost souls that are dead, but the elect that had passed away during the tribulation period. So there's a little bit of a theological debate that goes on there about who is this elect and bring them together. Well, and we also talked about how after the rapture, if it was a preacher rapture, after that you would have people finding the Bibles laying around and just coming to faith and coming to God in the middle of this. 
So there's no rapture for those people beforehand. So you still have them on the planet at the second coming. Sure. And that's where we talk about the great harvest or the great revival during the tribulation period, because there will be tribulation age saints. John is very clear about that in the book of revelation. Right. And so that's something that, again, there's your, and I call it a nice debate because I, I really think it's a healthy study of God's word to understand that where the event of the rapture will take place we do have people coming to the Lord during the tribulation period because they're seeing what's taking place on the earth and they're saying, this is all foretold. I need to repent of sin. Jesus Christ is real. His word is real. And so we have all of this taking place at the same time. Now then, the second coming of Christ is a physical coming. When he comes down, there will be a physical return. And I don't want to overlook the, the physicality, if I can use that word, because it's tangible. His kingdom is not just a spiritual kingdom. Right. Although, yeah, we're spiritually reborn, as Jesus talked about in John chapter 3. But it's a physical kingdom. It is a literal 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ on the planet, in the physical. He comes to judge and to make war. And here, this is where it takes place. So when he comes back, we're going to have this scene. And this also parallels, I want to throw this in. We were talking about the parallel to the seal judgments where well, we left off in the fifth judgment, which was the cry of the martyrs. Now, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, we have the sixth seal. And let me read this real quick because it's just right in line with what we just read. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand it parallels beautifully and we're going to even see some more of this mention of the fig tree in, in just a moment in matthew 24 but again the sixth seal right in line there is an exact parallel of what jesus is giving in matthew 24 looking i don't want to say verses but looking how john is writing in Revelation chapter 6. It's awesome. So all of this scene, this description of how the world is, really sets the stage to let all of us know that Jesus Christ has not come back yet because these types of events haven't even occurred. And when Christ comes back to the earth, again, he's coming back to save the world from the destruction of the Antichrist. Save the world from destruction of wickedness save mankind from the destruction of their sin and when he comes back think of it as the final second in the game and then christ comes in and it's just a total victory not to say that the antichrist almost won that's not what the bible says the bible depicts his return and the timing of his return it is precisely at the moment where flesh would have been destroyed 
And when he comes in, the victory is so absolute, there wasn't even any question about it that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah who is infinitely powerful above all that ever existed, including the Antichrist. Well, and it's that moment like if you have a basketball game and it's just a massacre, it's, you know, 100 points to two points. And if you're looking at what's on the floor, it's like, yeah, that team's going to win. But you didn't know that Christ was in the locker room. And he comes out of the locker room in the last 20 seconds of the game with an enormous sword and beheads the whole other team. And you're like, well, they win by default now. <laughs> I guess, man. I don't know how you drop that down. But, yeah. I know, but you get what I'm saying. If you look at what's going on on the playing board, it's there's no way for the Christians to come out of this. There's no way for all flesh to come out of this. And that's exactly what God wants. God wants a situation where you're so desperate for him where he's saying, when you cry out for me and you're desperate for me, that's what I'm going to show up because you need to know how much you need me. Right. In our own personal lives for a savior and then in this world at this point right. under the Antichrist and his evil empire, the man, I, I struggle to try to put it into words and describe how bad and chaotic the world's going to be, but it is. And then at that precise moment, when everybody needed a savior who was looking for a way out. Now, I do believe that the ones who have the mark of the beast, they're not looking for a savior. They're completely, their soul is already damned. They just don't even know it yet. Right. But it's the ones who are still trying to either hide or somehow resist the influence of the Antichrist. And they're like, it's just a matter of time now, you know? And then whenever Christ comes back to the planet, it's going to be at the epic moment but his precise time it doesn't mean that jesus christ almost lost and again i'm sorry i'm attacking it from another angle here but it's he's allowing things to get so bad that there's no question of who the savior is because if it wasn't that bad and then he shows up it's like oh well what kind of a savior is that you know it was just a nice sunny day and he just showed up i mean you know that's not impressive right but if it's this dark day the sun is blotted out. The stars have fallen. It's just, there's no hope. And then he steps in at that moment. Then it's like, it's our savior. The embrace, the recognition of his power, his timing, his delivery, all these things. Now it's epic. The worship's up here now for, and the glorification's up here now for God. Well, and look at the description of the Bible of the countenance of God, the face of God. It's the blazing sun. And then his clothes are white like linen. His feet are like brass that's fresh out of the fire. So it's glowing. And so he, the appearance of Christ is um, brilliant, is extreme. And then take the situation. He, he himself, the glory of God, would drown out the sun. But he takes the sun out of the equation. Then he takes the moon out of the equation. <laughs> then he takes the stars out of the equation. Then he rolls the sky back like a scroll and ba-chong. Yeah, it's, it's the and contrast. Exactly. The contrast becomes so extreme that, like you said, you won't need to check your phone to see if he came. When everything, day and night, is blotted out, and then suddenly there's a blazing light source somewhere that, if it's more extreme than the sun, it's going to shine around the horizon. Mm -hmm. The atmosphere will be lit by it. I mean, you see that now. If you go, I mean, just where we are now, if you step outside, we're not in the city, but you can see the what they call light pollution from the city that's just right up the road. Um, you see the glow on the horizon in the same way he would light the atmosphere and you would have light pollution around the planet, in my opinion. 
well, I wouldn't call Jesus's light pollution, but well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Though. Well, no, it, it's going to be bright. His brilliance. It says that as lightning shines from east to west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. We're going to get more into the exact words of the Bible about his return in, in an upcoming episode here, but it's going to be glorious. It's going to be epic. It's going to be at the precise moment in order to save all mankind. I want to make one other comparison here. Luke 21 has the same account of this delivery by Christ of the sign of his return, the Olivet Discourse. And I want to read verses 25 through 27. This is this same portion here, but he adds in one little phrase, one little mention. And it says, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now that kind of gives us another dimension. We have the seas mentioned about the waves roaring, and I'm thinking tsunamis. And then he possibly brings it to the connection of mankind is so afraid that people will literally be dying of anxiety or heart attacks or stroke, blood pressure, heart rates through the roof, where we know that stress kills the body physically. It's scientifically proven. Right. But now think about this epic day. Think about how much you would have to worry about now in this arena, in this environment with these events taking place just to survive. And then you have these things, again, we've already talked about it. These things you can't even explain that are being thrust into your world and you're having to make decision. And oh, by the way, your life counts on it, right? The Antichrist is giving you an option here. You're going to die if you don't side with me. And Christ steps into the scene. He steps onto the planet at this moment. We already know that there's great anxiety about what's going on in the planet right now. Just take natural disasters for the sake. Let's not even talk about wars. Let's just talk about the natural disasters. A great earthquake, a tsunami, a hurricane, severe drought, severe mudslides, tornadoes, an outbreak of tornadoes across a region, whatever. Just take whatever natural disaster and you have people that are absolutely worried like well where am i going to get my next meal or how am i going to get drinking water how can i stay warm how can i have a roof over my head now i'm exposed to the elements i don't have an air conditioner now i've got elderly exposed to heat all these things you're now worrying about and it's not even about i had a tough day at the office or me and my wife had a disagreement over what to cook tonight yeah the anxiety is magnified times a thousand And then you step into the Great Tribulation with these types of natural disasters coupled with wars. Power was given unto the Antichrist to trodden down the saints. Now that's pressure, the Tribulation. Well, that's like at Hurricane Harvey here. You and I were on the phone. I got the phone call that morning saying that my sister's house was flooded and... It's raining outside. We're in the middle of a hurricane. I told you I'm leaving to go across town and get my you know, sister and her family out of a shelter. And you're saying, telling me on the phone, dude, the streets are flooded. You can't get out. It's not safe. You're going to flood your truck. It's Dude, just stay where you are. They're better at the shelter. And I'm saying, no, I got to get my family 
here, not there. And they were standing out in the rain. I mean, it was the shelter wasn't really open. It was just, hey, y'all can stand around this building. Um, it was a miserable time. But you're telling me, dude, it's, sa- it's not safe. Don't go. And it took me over six hours to drive what would normally take me 45 minutes. Zigzagging through back roads and just what's available and what, you know, what streets not flooded. And it was a very interesting, very hostile time where it's like, I got to get my family. And that's just my sister and her kids, you know, and her husband. You, you know, that's not even like my wife and my kids, which would be so much more extreme on me. Of I've got to save these people. And you, as my friend, are saying, dude, it's not worth it. You're going to put yourself in a horrible situation trying to help them. You're going to, you know, you're going to mess yourself up. Like, don't do it. You know, let the emergency services help them. You weren't telling me, like, don't help them. But, you know, like right now, it's like we're still in the middle of a hurricane. I it's just not the time. I didn't think it was possible that you can get to them. It almost wasn't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at it that you're going to fail in the attempt not that hey right. don't do it it's not worth it but it's just you're going to fail and now you have a compounded situation and the only thing i want to add to this historical event that occurred was that society was was really in a better place compared to well right i say a better place compared to the tribulation period but you know what i'm saying like there wasn't the antichrist trying to kill christians and during hurricane harvey <laughs> You know, that's what I'm trying to say. Right, and that's what I'm saying. And so this is um, Houston, Texas area. And so we're used to hurricanes. It happens every few years. My sister and them are used to hurricanes. They know what was coming. They were ready for it, yet they weren't ready for their house flooding. And just that just that little monkey wrench in it changed everything. Um, suddenly they're out of their house. They don't have clothes. They didn't have food. Like everything that had been kind of, you know, assumed was taken away and they were left in this bare position. And now you take that situation and you put it here in the end times, everything's taken away. Your ability to buy and sell is taken away. Cause my sister and I ended up running around town the rest of that day. After I got them, we kind of pushed up into town through some back roads I found and we were just trying to get them clothes and it was impossible to find clothes. The stores have been gutted. We were just trying to find water. The stores have been gutted of water Everything had been stripped. Everything was in a horrible, horrible state. You take that idea and you put it into this where, hey, there's also somebody trying to kill you. There's also people hunting you. You can't even buy those provisions if you found them without this mark. And it starts to become real just how desperate that situation would be. Just how intense that situation would be. And there's no escaping that environment. Right. It's going to be minute by minute, by minute, in that environment, with that pressure, with that weight, that burden of your family trying to survive what we're going to survive and live like this for years. Right. We don't even know if we're going to make it today or this hour. And now I've got to raise my kid. Now I've got to take care of my family. The pressure is going to be great. And then people's heart will fail them from fear as they see the next wave of catastrophe, of attack, of natural disaster, of something. It's another judgment that just occurred. Now it's super hot. Now it's super dark. Now we have an earthquake. You know, all these things, and it just never stops. Right, because the stress of that day was insane. I can't tell you what it felt like to be trying to find roads to get somewhere to get there and they don't have what you're looking for and it's sorry. And now you're looking around saying, okay, well, what else is open? What else is available? Where, if anywhere, can we get what we need? And we didn't get everything that she needed. We ultimately just had to go back to the house, you know, lock ourselves back inside. At least, you know, I still had power and everything here at my house. And so 
they could take a shower. They could, you know, we have an extra bedroom. They could sleep. They could rest and recuperate and set up for the next day. But even that doesn't necessarily come. Just those initial few hours of just that pure raging stress, which, dude, I can't even tell you how stressful it was. That's what you're living in. And men's heart will fail them. Exactly. From fear, looking upon what's coming on the earth. And, you know, we keep trying to paint this picture because we haven't ever experienced it on the planet. There's nothing fully that we can reference back into history. But things are going to be at that level where we need the Savior to come back. It's sorry to sound repetitive, but we need Christ. We need Christ here on the planet. So moving forward up to verse 32, this is a really interesting um, parable. And I'm going to read it first, and then I'll explain why I think it's interesting. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So what I find interesting about this is the fig tree represents Israel in prophetic meanings over and over and over. And so when you take it as the fig tree is Israel and then look at everything else we're talking about, he's saying this generation, in other words, the generation in the end times will not pass away before my second coming is what he's saying here. So it's, I've heard it said as the generation that saw Israel come back. And I've heard it as the generation that was there when the tribulation started. That's absolutely correct. And how do we know that Israel is the fig tree? Read Joel chapter one, and it outlines how Israel is the fig tree. The Bible interprets itself. When we have symbology or a reference and we need understanding about the meaning, we look within the Bible, and then we get our answer. So therefore, the answer of who is the fig tree, or what is the fig tree, Joel chapter 1, again, it's Israel. So there's this reference about this fig tree putting forth its leaves, and the branches becoming tender. It's like you're coming out of some sort of dormant period, and then now you're back into a flourishing and a growth period. And eschatologists, I'm one of them, agree that it points to the fact Israel existed in the past. They were subdued by multiple empires, ultimately destroyed by the Romans. And then moving forward to May 14th, 1948, Israel was born in a day. The nation that is formally born in a day. We can go back to the Zionist movement in the 1800s and so on. But the nation itself, they gain their independence May 14th, 1948. Later on, regain Jerusalem as their capital on June 6th, 1967. And he's saying that that generation who observes that, who witnesses the fulfillment of the fig tree putting forth its branches and leaves, that generation will not pass away until what? Till all things are fulfilled. What's all things? Well, we just read it. We've been in it for now. This is the second episode of Matthew chapter 24. Everything we've been talking about, all of these things, including the return of Christ back to the planet, will all occur within the generation that sees the fig tree put forth its tender branches and have the leaves. 
flourishing and growing again. And who is the fig tree? It's Israel. That's why everybody back in the 40s was excited, hey, Jesus Christ is coming back, because they knew who the fig tree is and what Christ said about the fig tree and how that coincides with that's God's timetable. That's God's prophetic clock. So we look at it now, we say, hey, Israel's been in the nation for decades now. They've had Jerusalem as their capital for decades now. And this is leading into an excellent description of when will Jesus come back. And there's all kinds of date setting, but let's read ahead here. Verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. It almost sounds like it's contradicting, but it's not. There is no contradiction here. It says that no one will know the day or the hour. That has nothing to do with the generation or the season. The Bible is not contradicting itself. And a lot of people say, oh, they stand. It's like, it's like the world's quickest verse that they ever memorize when it comes to Bible prophecy is this one right here. No one knows the day or the hour, brother. Therefore, just I don't want to hear your prophetic talk. We can't talk about eschatology because no one knows the day or the hour. Right. So you're saying that because no one knows the day or the hour that we're told not to study prophecy? We're told not to study Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Luke 21, all of Revelation, all of Daniel. So we just we throw those away because you're quoting this at me. When Revelation ends with, blessed are those who read this book. And keep its prophecies. Right. So here we are now, the great debate. Do we as Christian believers, do we study prophecy or do we ignore it? Do we look at what the prophetic descriptions are and then observe the world and see where we are in this timetable? Or do we say, God told us not to look at any of it because no one knows the day or the hour? So which is it? There's a scripture here saying that no one will know. Keep everything in context. Right. It's the day, it's the hour. It didn't say month or year. In fact, Jesus Christ rebuked people who called themselves believers or children of God and said, you can't even discern the time and the season of your visitation. You can look in the clouds and look up in the sky and know if it's going to rain, but you don't even know what's going on prophetically. And so he demands us to know the times, the seasons. Well, and then plus that, once you see the abomination that causes desolation, you know it's three and a half years later. I mean, so you can't say, oh, nobody knows the weather. Well, yeah, generally it's going to be three and a half years after when this happens. But yeah, you don't know the day or the hour. I'm not saying it's going to be this specific day of this, you know, at 745. But you know, three and a half years after that. And how do we know that? Well, we don't have just one reference of the duration from the abomination of desolation to the second coming. We have multiple references of right. the duration of time. So now we know where we're at in the prophetic scheme. Right, but it goes all the way back to Daniel. So even the Jews were teaching Daniel and what he prophesied, whether they knew what it meant or not. So given what's in Daniel, given what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24, it says point blank. Whenever you see the fig tree put forth its tender branches and leaves, you know that this generation will not pass away till all is fulfilled. And then he says, no one will know the day or the hour, but he just gave us the season. And what we need to know as Christian believers, that we are commanded to know when this season begins. 
And based off of the Bible, God's word, we know that we are living in the days, in the generation, in the season, whatever phrase, whatever term you want to put on it, of our Lord's return based off biblical teaching of eschatology. Hands down. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know that we're in the season. And that is epic. That is very epic of what Christian teachers and pastors need to be explaining to their congregations because we don't want anyone to be deceived when the Antichrist comes onto the planet with his empire, with his deception, leading people straight into the pits of hell because we didn't want to teach it because we didn't believe it was going down because no one knows the day or the hour, you know, that type thing. So they avoid it. And then they set their whole congregation up for failure, eternal failure. Well, in these days, the congregational focus becomes money. Anyways, it becomes, how do I maximize my 401k while at the same time winning God's favor? That's kind of the game we play today in a lot of, a lot of places. I don't want to say every church. So then in 37, you have the description of people who are caught unaware of the return of Christ. So in 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. So in that same idea of being caught unaware, he's talking about how Noah went to these people, warned them, and they're like, ah, oh, man, that can't even happen. You know, that's not even possible. And they just kept living life. They're drinking, they're eating, they're marrying, they're just living it up, just doing what you do. Oh, I got to have a wife. I got to have kids. I got to worry about this harvest. I got to do all this stuff. And Noah's watching him and then just, okay, he builds his ark and he goes in his ark. And also they were mocking his ark the whole time. Um, they hadn't seen rain like he's describing will be coming. And he goes in the ark and just listens to them get washed away. Um, listens to sees the world change instantly in a flash and everyone caught unaware. Everybody outside of the ark is left saying, Oh no. And in that same way, that's what Christ is saying. The son of man's going to show up on the scene and your chance is over your chance to get ready your time to to prep for this it's over here i am open the judgment books it's on and the key that we don't want to overlook is whenever these people realize that they were wrong it's too late right and i believe where it says as in the days of noah they were eating drinking marrying and giving in marriage They were living life in the Antichrist system because they had that cover and they had that participation to where they could do that in that society. So this is already pointing to a wicked fallen masses. This is a wicked fallen society that's looking at things of God, his signs of his return, scoffing. And Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, 
Where is this promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they will fully forget that by the word of God that the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter is prophesying that in the last days there will be scoffers. When people say there's no such thing as the coming of Jesus Christ back to the earth, they are scoffing the return. You know what? They're fulfilling Bible prophecy. Right. My dad says, you know what? They're fulfilling Bible prophecy right there. Just the very fact that they are scoffing is part of the signs of the return of Christ. And we were talking about that earlier. I was mentioning about science and how science has taken the place as the primary religion now. Everything scientific is a theory, and yet I'll take that theory over your religion because your religion comes with morality and condemnation and science comes with, ah, eh, when it's over, it's over. I won't know anyway. Well, there's accountability to God, and that's what they don't want. They want right. to live in their sin. They want to glory in their sin. And God's righteous mandate is an inconvenience to the fulfillment of the lust of their flesh. Right. And see, that's the, what we see in the modern America, at least, and other parts of the world, too, with this, this extreme need for political correctness. It's previously in life, Christian morals in this country, at least, have and in Europe have dictated um, social norms. So Christian morals, um, you don't cheat on your wife. You don't cuss, at least not around you know, women and children. Sex belongs between a man and his wife and in the bedroom and things like that. But now, man, we want strip clubs and I want to cheat on my wife with six other people. And, you know, I just want to tell dirty jokes all the time and in all these things, well, how do you mesh the two? You can't. But if you can delete the religion, if you can delete God out of it and say, okay, well, I don't want to follow those anymore. Well, who else has been held down by religion? Well, homosexuals. So homosexuals come up and they say, hey, you know what? We can get on board with that because those Christians, they've been holding us down. So now you can't offend the homosexuals. Why? Oh, we've been held down for so long. Look how long we've been held down by those Christian morals. Forget you and your Christianity. You're not allowed to use the word gay because we don't like it. You'll say homosexual. You'll say trans. Why? Because that makes us happy too. Because I'm not gay. I'm trans. You're going to use my preferred pronoun. Because if you don't, then we're going to blacklist you on the internet or whatever. It's this fear of people not liking you has now become the morality that America operates by. Well, we see the world pushing out God's word, his law, his commands, right. You know, homosexuality, uh, pervasive and provocative sexual promiscuity, all these things. That's just one. I mean, we get into greed and lust of life and social cloud and vanity and lying and all these other things. They're all equally wicked and everyone wants to indulge in this. And whenever you have the Bible telling you that sin, repent, well, that's an inconvenience to what they want. And here, God is calling all to repentance. Even during the tribulation period, God is calling mankind to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent before it's too late. And when Christ comes back on that day, it will be too late. It's over. There's no 
oh, there he is. Now I can drop to a knee and and really get right with the Lord and, and say this prayer. No, it's it's instant. It's over. It's done. The moment that you die, it's over. It's done. There's no, oh, well, let me really bear out all of these things that I need to repent of. No, it's over. And that's what Noah in his day was doing. Hey, a flood is coming. Destruction's coming. You need to get on board, pun intended, with what God says to do so that you can survive this. Same thing we just read in Peter. The world was destroyed by water in Noah's day. The earth is now preserved for fire. And there's only one way out, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our ark. He is the only way that we can exit this planet safely and have eternal rest with him. Everything else is destruction, and we don't want to be a part of it. And so whenever we look to the return of Christ, it will be sudden. It will be unstoppable. There will be no delay when it occurs. And with that said, we need to repent of sin. We need to be ready. I also want to touch on one other thing. It says, as in the days of Noah, so will it be during the days just before the return of Christ. Paraphrasing there. There was also the Nephilim. We mentioned it before. Right. I do believe that's going to play a role during the tribulation period of this giants on the planet again. What will they be fulfilling? I believe they'll be fulfilling the wrath of God. Okay. I mean, what exactly will they be doing? We can begin to speculate on that. I don't want to chase that too far, but I do think that that is included here. I think that it is an exact paralleling. We've talked about it before, and we also have some plans to have some episodes to discuss giants in the future. But I want to just drop that in there because I do believe it goes together and it fits here. Right. So we're talking about judgment, picking up in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So that's the thing that you hear a lot in church. Um, DC Talk even had a song talking about that, like a man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a voice and turns her head. He's gone. Wish we'd all been ready. It's a common thing that you teach in church. It's a common idea of, you know, you can be so close to somebody and spend every day with them and one of you be saved and not the other. When the rapture comes, you know, one of them's gone. The other's left standing there saying, why? You know, you're left in that moment. And that's a common thing. But this kind of goes back to that immediacy that we were talking about earlier. It's been a, a repeating thing in this 24 of Matthew is the urgency. You don't know when it's coming you have to be ready. When do you get ready? You get ready now. You can't get ready later. You can't get ready after it starts. It's not something like you can leave for the trip and run by the store on your way out of town to pick up what you need. You got to have, you got to be ready beforehand. And that's repeated over and over and over in this verse. And this is just one more point where it really drives it home. Well, and I think too, this is a personal judgment. Well, let me back up. You mentioned the rapture. I do believe when the rapture occurs, we're going to have a picture like this. Yeah. Okay. I think it's really simple. You're working with a coworker. They're not born again. At the moment of the rapture, the Christians caught up. The non-believer is left behind. Okay. Right. I think it fits. I don't necessarily think that this is speaking of the rapture per se. Now then, I know I'm kind of speaking parallel two things at the same time. So if you can follow me, the post-tribulation rapture theorist believes, aha, another pointing of the rapture happening when Christ comes back, here it is. Right. 
The pre-tribulation rapture theorist looks at this same verse and says, no, this is judgment. One's taken a judgment, the other one's not. And I don't want to chase that rabbit all the way down, but we do know that this is personal. I think this is the big takeaway. When Christ comes back to the earth, we always think of the big epic, like it's a movie of sorts. Like you have this super epic scene, you have the hordes of the evil army, and then you have Christ and his glory and divinity with the heavenly armies, and they're coming in like something you would see in Hollywood, right? And we're just thinking like, it's just so epic. It's so big and there's so many people involved. It doesn't feel personal. It looks like you're just watching a scene. You're just watching this event. There's not this personal, I don't say feel to it, but relevance. You kind of lose the all of the little pieces for the sum of the whole. This verse brings it back down to the individual. This verse or these few verses, 40 through 42, brings it that when Jesus Christ comes back to the planet, he knows everybody individually. You can't hide in the 500th row back and duck down and then think that Jesus didn't see me. You can't be in your bunker. You can't be in the woods. You can't be on the other side of the planet and say, Jesus is not aware of me over here, whether you're on his side or not, okay? What I'm saying is that Jesus knows where every single person on the planet is at all times. And when he comes back, he is dividing wheat from tare. He is dividing sheep from goat. He is dividing the souls who are born again versus the souls who are lost in sin. And when that happens, it's going to be sudden. There's no goodbyes. There's no exchange. There's no, hey, man, before this happens, dude, get ready. Here here it comes. It's just boom, done, separated. It's over. Because contextually, we've been talking about the return of the Son of Man and the angels gathering the elect. And so you come here and it's still... When he shows up, you have that, like you were saying, that separation. You're pulling the elect out. You're separating them from what remains behind. And it's perfect. And this is some encouragement. Let me just drop some encouragement now. We've been talking about some heavy stuff this entire two-part episode. Nobody is getting away with anything. I've said that before. Nobody is getting away with anything. We talk about why do the wicked prosper? How come the wicked are in power and it seems like they just get away literally with murder, genocide, robbing and pillaging countries, making families be slave to the tax, all these things. Why is this happening? Why are they lording over the masses and nobody can stop them? Here it is right here. This is where they're stopped. Finally. Right. And this is it. I mean, this is the, the return of the Messiah. He delivers the planet out of the hands of the wicked And nobody got away with anything. Nobody got away with a single wicked deed, let alone all of them wholesale under the Antichrist. And that is a praise note for the believer to say to the wicked, you have to deal with my God. Right. Well, even the elect, when you're pulled up, you still go to judgment. You still go and sit under, here's everything you did. That's right. So even then, it's still going to be accounted for, even if you, you know, for lack of better words, even if you got in. Yeah. And, so. we're, and, and just to be clear, we're speaking of two different judgments. There's the ju- right. judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat for the believer. And then there's a great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the millennial reign for the lost soul, the damned. And all of those who appear at the great white throne judgment will be thrown out into the lake of fire of burning sulfur. So there's the differences there. But yeah, you're absolutely correct. 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as Second Corinthians talks about from Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Right, like you were saying, everyone's going to give an accounting for what happened. Right. So even if you get into heaven, you're still held accountable for what happens. He's the great judge. It's going to be a good thing. So going with that, verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So that goes with what we were just saying. We were just saying you have to be ready. You cannot predict it. You cannot say, oh, I'll be ready later. He uses an interesting parable when he says the master's house being robbed if he'd known when the thief was coming because always before whenever Christ talks about the thief, it's always Satan. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And yet here he's almost referring to himself. It's parable, so it's okay, but you see what I'm saying. The preparation for the event of Christ's return is repentance and becoming born again. Let's just drop it right there where the ultimate decision that needs to be made by each individual to be ready. The whole point of this is that you can't think and deceive yourself and saying, I've got enough time to get my affairs in order. I have enough time to prepare and kind of sweep up and clean up just before the master returns or just, you know, this event takes place. This thief is coming. So, oh, I'll have time to prepare for this, this thief, this visitor. No, when Christ comes, that's it. You don't have time. It's sudden. It's absolute. It's over. It's like flipping a switch. You don't have time to prepare for the light to come out the light bulb when you flip the switch. It's just instant and it's decisive and it's over. And so whenever we look at the return of Christ, you already said it, the time to prepare is now. So this is the common thread as you read Bible prophecy or eschatology in the word of God. The common thread is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So then moving forward to 45, it says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. And will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the interesting thing is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That kind of parallels what you were saying about the lake of fire. But what catches my eye is in the beginning, he says the servant who's in charge of feeding and taking care of the other servants to me, be it my background or whatever, that's a pastor, which obviously anybody who's a Christian, you should be doing, working um, something for the cause of Christ. A tree bears fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. So if you're a Christian, you should be doing Christian things, and Christians are called to in order to bear good fruit and to do works in Christ's name. I remember even the disciples were trying to get some clarification what ministry is. They said, Lord, when did we feed you? When did we give you food or visit you in prison? And he says... 
if you've done it under the least of these, you've done it under me. Right. So he's saying that is ministry. So it is the pastors in the pulpit and it is the church member who attends, but it's what you said. What are you doing in this world at your job with your family, with people out in public in the church proper itself? Right. And then from there you have the evil servant who says, Oh, my master's coming later. So I have time. And then, falls into, you know, like it says, drinking with the drunkards, basically falling into sinful ways. And that'd be the kind of person who says, I, you know, I'll repent at the end of it all for right now. Let me just live life and to the fullest and lavishly and woohoo good times for now. I'll straighten out my marriage later, but for now, man, whatever, I'm going to cheat on my wife or I'll, you know, sober up later, but for now I'm going to be drunk all the time or I'll take care of my children later. But for now, here's the, the child support check. You know, things like of that nature, basically it's, I know what I should be doing, but because I don't feel the accountability at this moment, I'm going to relax. Man, there's so, there's so many directions we can go from what you just said. The Lord is coming. We know this. How ought you to live? Peter puts that statement out. We just re- well, we didn't read it, but it's further down in second Peter chapter three. We have this parable that Jesus Christ just laid down. And at the end of Matthew 24, we just read the master's coming, how ought you to take care of his home, his dwelling, things that he's entrusted to you to take care of and operate. The bottom line is, is that again, we are all going to give an account for every moment of life, regardless of the person saying, I'll do it later. I've got time. Right Right, right now, I just want me time. Right now, I just want to do what I want to do. This family thing, this work obligation. Those are inconveniences. Those are too, I don't know, restraining and restrictive of what I want to do. I just want to be free. And that's a lie of Satan. That is a temptation that comes from wickedness. We are called to be good stewards. We are called to be workers. We are called to be dependable. We are called to be fellow servants to those around us, all for Christ's kingdom. And when we begin to shed and throw off these responsibilities in the name of, well, you know, self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment of fun and activity and fulfillment of the flesh, that is completely derailing us from what God has built us and called us to do, especially in the days that we live in. So again, how should we be living? How should we be acting and serving right now? Well, and if you get into a study, if you just just find a concordance for the Bible and put in the, I'm assuming a computer concordance, but put in the phrase for my namesake and you find all the places where God lists, I will do this because I said so. And so for my namesake, in other words, I can't be who I am unless I do what I say, what I'm going to do. And in the same way, it's you do these things for my namesake. In other words, if you're going to be my people, you have to do the things that my people do. It's that same mentality. It's that if you're going to be of Christ, then you have to be about the things of Christ and behave the way that Christ would behave and do that, which you would be commanded to do for his namesake. Cause otherwise you're, you're giving a bad witness. That would be the example of the good servant. Then you have the wicked servant. Like we were just talking about, like, I don't want to do, that thing today you were saying like go to work oh i don't want to be a good worker today but you see what i'm saying you have to be about the things of christ if you're going to wear the name of christ and the evil servant does the opposite 
we talked about briefly in one episode how you're going to worship something no matter what because you're just made to worship. That's just what you are. You're built for that. So are you worshiping God or are you worshiping something else? And in the world of God, it would be you do what Christ says as a form of worship. So when you don't do what Christ said, it's almost like an anti-worship. There's another truth here that we get that's inferred. We're told here what we need to be doing, what's proper. Something that would be improper is to say, you know what, the end of the world is coming, quote unquote, and I'm just going to stop doing what I, you know, the normal things because there's no time left anyway. It's all going to burn. So what's the use? I'm just going to go up on a mountaintop or go, you know, hide away in some corner of the earth and just disappear and then not even interact with people just because it's almost becomes like some sort of cult, right? Like, Hey, we're just going to get out here and we're just going to be by ourselves. So they're not interacting the world. That's not what we're supposed to do either. But instead we're supposed to be maintaining whatever call, whatever purpose, whatever we're involved with, with our families, with our jobs, these same things we've talked about and to be God's ambassadors, Christ ambassadors in this wicked world, interfacing with these, whatever you want to call them, the lost masses we are the evangelists. We are God's hands, his feet. We tell and share God's word with those around us. We live out God's word in our life. And this is part of being that faithful servant. While the master is away, we want to be tending to all these things when he comes and he finds us faithful, not, oh, well, he's coming right away. And therefore I'm just going to run for the hills, you know, because everything's about to break loose. So I got to, you know, duck and, and jump in my bunker, you know, so that way I can not be impacted. See, and that's another good question. So in verse 16, we talked about Christ says, run for the mountains. Or he says, let those in Judea run for the mountains. So you have that situation, but then at the same time, you have so many commandments to stand boldly, even unto death. So it's like, what do you do in that moment? Do you have that moment of like, well, he said it's cool to run for the mountains. Well, there's a difference here. We're talking in a functioning society. Right. Whenever you're still going through your regular routines as best as possible, In the case of what we read in the Abomination of Desolation, that's a specific event where the Antichrist is coming to kill you. There is no normalcy there. It's run or be slaughtered. It's a little bit of a different comparison. It's not fair to put these two together. Here is saying that you have some sort of stability in society that you can function in, and you, you maintain your presence there in that community, that job site, you know, your family, so on. Right, because it becomes in the in the end times, it's almost like the whole objective is just survive. It becomes this thing of he who endures to the end. In other words, if you endure all this and you don't take the mark, and if you resist to the point that, yeah, I'm even willing to die, behead me, I don't care, I'm still not taking your mark. It's like just that is an extreme trial, like the most extreme ever ever seen. It almost becomes a situation of like just resisting that is all you got to do. Not to say that you're just like in free and you don't have to be a witness or anything like that, but it's just that alone is kind of the challenge, like the gauntlet thrown out in front of you. Well, I mean, you can very quickly get into a dizzying, frantic effort of trying to figure out the best place on the planet, the best location to live and digging the deepest hole and all this. The bottom line is we're just called to live as godly people on this planet and to do the best we can with what we have, what God has given us knowing what's coming on the earth, holding and occupying until he returns. And yeah, some of us are going to be martyred. 
some of us are going to be killed in natural disasters that point to his return. It's just how it's going to go down. It's what you did with the time that you were given. That's what matters. How you were living for the Lord while you were drawing breath, not putting off your service to God until later in life or when I get older, when I reach this milestone, then I'll serve the Lord. Then I'll be a Christian. It's every waking day doing the best you can, repenting of sin, and having his Holy Spirit lead and guide and direct your life. So with that, man, we're going to draw to a close. But let's look back at everything else that we looked at tonight. We started off with 1 through 14, and we were talking about the parallels that it had with with the book of Revelation and the seven sealed judgments and how they work hand in hand. And then from that, we moved into the moment of the abomination that causes desolation. From that point, the emergency the urgency just revs up and Christ is saying, man, run for the hills. Don't even take time to go back to your house and get what you need. And then from that, we moved into talking about the the return of the Son of Man and just how you shouldn't be confused or taken by false Christ who just appear on the world and try to lure you in, that there's not going to be any confusion. It's just going to be very abrupt in the moment of a lightning strike that quickly, and there'll be no mistaking him. And then from that moving into the judgments that's going to come from that. And we were talking about how it becomes personal and he's going to separate his people from the world and pull them out. And then the time of judgment and that these things are very real and that these things are coming. They're absolutely a part of our future. And the way that we conduct our life now is not going to be an acceptable way then when you're sitting in judgment. And we're also commanded to know the season, the generation that we live in and not be dismissive to all of these things, all of these signs, because quote unquote, Matthew 24 says, no one knows the day or the hour. Right. So we don't just throw away the whole study of eschatology and all of its references across the entire Bible. And that's another thing that it's very clear here. I mean, look how much Jesus Christ was talking about these signs. And I think it's another thing of, Look how much time we spent on this on this episode on yet again Bible prophecy. Just this one chapter. Yeah, just this one chapter. There's so much in it, so many different subjects, so many different events that trying to unpack each event and to look at it, say, oh, this is what it would look like, or this is some of the effects that we could expect. There's so much volume here to just throw it in the garbage can and say, well, based off of that one verse, day or hour, we're just going to throw away the whole generation and the whole season and all of the signs that's not biblical so with that again like subscribe share us um, do pray for us we do appreciate you listening and we will see you guys next time
So that's what this is about. Three and a half years, and then we're going to talk about it. We're going to tie this back to Daniel chapter 9. We did that in episode... Um, I forgot what episode it was. Let me look up my episodes. Uh-oh. It's kind of handy to have... You did the update. Look at that. What? Oh, I did it last night. You haven't seen it? No, just now. It's the first time. Yeah, I put the new image up last night. Okay, I'm just going to like intro it and kick it to you to, to run with. Okay. So I don't want to just start reading your notes and be like, oh, it says this. No. Yeah. And you're just saying what I just said. <laughs> I can read Yeah, too. in longhand version. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, verses four and five talk about false Christ and deception, i.e. ultimately the Antichrist. <laughs> well, that leads me to say that verses four and five speak of false Christ and deception, i.e. ultimately the Antichrist. <laughs> so what you're saying is verses four and five talk about false False Christ and deception, i.e. ultimately the Antichrist. (laughs) Moving right along. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. I go. There's a movie where a guy's doing vocal exercises to warm up his throat. He's a singer. And he's just going, like that whole bunch every time I watch it. I've I've studied that stuff, and it actually, a lot of those quote-unquote exercises actually destroy your vocals. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. Did you ever hear a... Josh's pre-workout for vocals. Again, I referred to my previous statement. (laughs) Destroy your vocals. Warm tea with honey followed by screaming in a pillow. Yeah. I was just trying to let you get through this so we can move into what we got to cover tonight. Hey, before you say something, can you just do like the little intro of saying, um, if welcome to Crosscast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. I feel very welcome. Um, no. Ka-chow. Yeah. Can you do the, if you, um, if you haven't listened to 8A, do so. Do you want to do that right here? And then I can throw it in the beginning. Yeah, that's fine. All right, go ahead and just lay that down real quick. Just just a quick little liner that I'll put right in front of the intro. I remember how I said it. Okay. Hi, everybody. Due to time... No. Due to an overall time length, episode... Bible Prophecy Part 8 was split into two episodes. Part 8A is episode... 15, wasn't it? Part 8A was episode 15 and is the beginning. And part 8B is episode 16. No, that's not how I said it. That was the... Just say, if you haven't listened to episode 15, please go back and listen to episode 8A as it's the first part of this Bible prophecy episode. Hi, everybody. Due to time... Due to overall time length, Bible Prophecy Part 8 was split into two episodes. This is Bible Prophecy Part 8B. If you have not already listened to Bible Prophecy Part 8A in Episode 15, you should go back and listen to that first. This is the conclusion. No. First try. (laughs) Bing! 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 First try! (laughs) Have you seen the new trailer? For the Lego, Le- Lego movie, movie too. All right, all right. You, you so, can cut that out. All right, so um, okay, here we go. Hang on, let me let me. You gra- can, you can cut the whole. I know. Like guillotine yeah. part out. I will. Oh, what I do. You're like, I would play. Yeah, you're not even gonna be in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Coming a little bit further forward to the Bolshevik res- revolution. To the Bolshevik res. Come forward. Bringing it a little bit more modern, the Bolshevik res... Oh, I can't say it. 
<laughs> that'll be that'll make the that'll make the cut. Bolshevik revolution. Yeah. yeah. Bringing it more modern, the Bolshevik revolution. He's going to do it on his day in the manner that he sees fit in the exact moment that he's already man, I messed this up. And when he comes back, it will be on the day that of his choose. It'll oh man. Wow. <laughs> Derailed. What's all this now? Yeah. I'm not gonna get into all these whack jobs that you see on the news claiming to be Jesus and there was this one a while back, I think it was like last year or something, where there <laughs> it was this stupid interview with this with this husband and wife. And uh and it comes on and the dude says, Hi, I'm Jesus. And his wife says, And I'm Mary. And I'm like, Oh my Are you serious? I'm serious. It's like, oh my this is way out of control. Hold on, was he Hispanic and he was saying no, Jesus? No, no, it was it was a white couple, but oh my goodness, it was terrible. That's really but, weird. But anyway, but that that's ridiculous. And yet here he's almost referring to himself. I mean, it's paraplytic, so it's okay. Or parabolic, not parabolic. Parabolic. It'd be parabolic, right? I don't know. Let's just not use any of what we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Mic drop. Headphone drop. Headphone drop. Going to get chicken. Yeah. <laughs>